I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're grateful for the chance to talk with Joshua Deanstag, professor of political science here at UW-Madison. Professor Deanstag's research focuses on the intersection of politics with time, history, memory, and narrative, with an emphasis on European political theory between the 17th and 19th centuries. He also writes about cinema, the American founding, and methods of political theory. Professor Dean Stagg is the author of four books, including Pessimism, colon, Philosophy, Ethics, Spirit, which won the Book Award for Excellence in Philosophy from the American Association of Publishers, and most recently, Cinema Pessimism, colon, A Political Theory of Representation and Reciprocity. His articles have appeared in American Political Science Review, Polity, Political Theory, Journal of Politics, History and Memory, and New Literary History, among other places. Professor Deanstag teaches a seminar called Humans, Animals, and Machines, and will be teaching the PoliSci 160 Intro to Political Theory course this coming fall. We're going to ask Professor Deanstag about his teaching and research interests and his current book project tentatively titled The Human Boundary, Freedom, Citizenship, and Democracy in a Post-Human Age. I just want to say, first of all, thank you so much for being on 1050 with us. I'm very excited to talk through some of your work and some of your research and all of the other things that come up. Thank you for having me. Since this is the first time we've had you on the podcast, I would love to just start with a little bit about your background and some of your teaching and research interests. Sure. And we're curious to hear what set you on this unique path that you've had toward becoming a professor and studying this specific area of work that you've found yourself in. I don't think anyone really, like, when you're an undergrad, you can't really know what it is to be a professor. So, I mean, mostly what I knew when I was an undergrad was that I, I wasn't ready to quit yet. So I just kept going on. Um, I wrote an undergraduate thesis about political theory that, you know, on a topic that some grad students then introduced me to. And, you know, some people said, oh, this was pretty good. Maybe you should keep doing this. So I applied to grad school, not really understanding what it was, because even though I guess I had met graduate students, I didn't, I didn't really know. I just thought it was like more college, mm-hmm. which was not completely wrong. So, I mean, I went to grad school with an interest in political theory, but I don't think I had any idea, you know, what I would end up studying or, or working on. Sure. Was there any specific interest you had in high school or like early in life that led to you being interested in political research specifically, or did it evolve naturally that way? No, I, when, I was, when I was in high school, I thought of myself more as a scientist, and I did a lot of science things, and... Uh, when I went to college, I was originally on a path to medical school, and, and I took all those classes, and I did fine, but I didn't love them, actually, and it turned out I loved my history and, and poli-sci classes, which just got me thinking in a different way. And I think it's really true that in college, you're studying biology and chemistry, and it's not that different from what you did in high school. It's harder, but it's the same kind of thing. So. That means in high school, you already kind of know what, what bio and camera like and things like that. But you don't really get poli-sci in high school. Um, and the history that you get is more memorization. It has nothing to do with like research. So, so it wasn't until college that I really understood that I was interested in these kinds of things. 
So we know you went on to earn your PhD at Princeton. What were you studying there? What kind of research were you doing for your PhD? Well, I got to Princeton just as um, there was a big transition in their political theory program. I, I, I knew I wanted to be a political theorist, more or less, but a, a, a very famous political theorist named Sheldon Wolin had just left, and there was sort of a new crew there with a professor that I ultimately worked with, whose name was George Kateb, and Alan Ryan, and uh, there were just a bunch of people who were sort of new, so we were all new together. But I took classes not just in, in poli-sci, but in, in religion, in philosophy, in history, and that was uh, a great way to go about a graduate education. Even I think as a graduate student, you should not be super specialized if you can help it. And programs don't always encourage that. It's something as a grad student you have to sort of do on your own. So ultimately, I ended up working on uh, narrative and memory in political theory. That was the subtitle of my first book. And, it, you know, it wasn't a project that any of my advisors sort of put me on and said, do this. But it was, I guess, a combination of the things I was reading and the classes I was taking and the questions I was hearing at conferences uh, and in journals, because in grad school, you, you start to go to conferences and read journals and learn more about your field, mm -hmm. not just from books, but in person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of that kind of interdisciplinary approach to your graduate education, yep. that has definitely continued into the work you're doing now. Yes. So we would love to talk to you a little bit about your research, what it is bringing to our department in the university. You're teaching a seminar called Humans, Animals, and Machines, yes. as we have looked through. And you write on your syllabus that the politics of humanity has encountered a new wave of political and theoretical movements, which no longer recognize as fundamental the distinction between human and non-human on which the original civil rights and anti-colonial movements were based. Can you begin by telling us what you mean by this? So, yes, thank you for the question. A lot happened in the 20th century. One thing that happened is that all around the planet, there was uh, at least a, a formal recognition, an official recognition, that every human was uh, eligible to be a citizen of the state where they were born, where they were a member. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was discrimination based on race, on, on sex and gender, discrimination based on religion, on national origin. There were many, many humans living around the world in societies where they were members of the society, but they weren't citizens, or they weren't full citizens, or they didn't have all the rights of some other set of, of citizens. And at the end of the 20th century, as a formal matter, that mostly isn't true. There are very, very few places where people are, for example, barred from voting because they're a member of a race or a gender, uh, or something like that. There's there's lots of practical ways in which people's rights are, are denied. But but basically, every country in the world uh, in the 20th century um, uh, realized that all humans were sort of fully eligible for citizenship. And you can see that also in the, the language of the civil rights movement, you know, those, those signs people holding saying, I am a man. I mean, it, it was a sort of basic political move of the 20th century to, to assert the power of humanity against discrimination based on race or on sex or religion or something like that. But part of what's going on there uh, is to say that being human is, is enough and being human is the qualification that gets you uh, the set of rights that, that all citizens get. 
So one thing that 20th century politics, uh, you know, what was common to all this 20th century politics was that sort of the, the power of humanity, the power of, of the human category. Now, in the 21st century, we have really for the first time, lots of people kind of questioning the specialness of the human and the, the human category as the basic political category we have. Animal rights movements, that's the most important one, at least the, the one most people listening to this will probably have heard of. There are many people who think either uh, animals should have some rights or, or should have as many rights as, as they can have. There are uh, books of political theory arguing that animals should have a kind of citizenship uh, based on the fact that, uh, like human beings, they have pleasure and pain. Like human beings, they think and uh, suffer and have feelings. And according to some scientists, they even have uh, society and culture and, and morality in a way. I'm not sure I agree with all these scientists, but anyway, uh, there's a group of people, animal rights people being one, who are, are less interested in saying humans are special and different and, and therefore politics is limited and defined by what's human. But in addition to the animal rights people, you also have artificial intelligence people we're all familiar with uh, ChatGPT this week, this month, uh, but for a while now, of course, AI has been kind of creeping into our lives in chatbots that you deal with when you, you know, uh, call an airline or contact a bank uh, or on Twitter. You know, lots of times you're not, you know, you're not dealing with human; you're dealing with a chatbot. But there are also people, of course, there are chatbots that um, romantically engage with people. And there are people who are emotionally engaged by their chatbots or their robots or, or whatever. And so there are also a bunch of artificial intelligence people who think uh, here too is something that's not human, but that we might treat as human and might treat as an important part of our society. The famous computer scientist, Alan Turing, who uh, invented what we now call the, the Turing test. The, the test we use these days is not really the one that he wrote about in his original article. But anyway, the point of that article was basically to say, when you can't tell the difference between a human and a computer, that's the point at which you can stop asking the question, is it intelligent? Is it a being? It doesn't matter because, of course, we don't inspect each other's brains to make sure that they're working properly. We don't look inside, you know, your heart or your mind to make sure that you're really thinking and feeling. We just deal with one another and we have a basic trust because of how we interact with each other that the other person is indeed a person. Uh, when AI reaches the point that we interact with it normally, um, and it's getting closer and closer every day, um, there'll be people who ask why we shouldn't also include AI in the world of political beings. And then there, of course, are people who want to privilege the environment, give the environment rights. The idea that the human is the natural, ordinary center of all political relationships is now in question in a way that it wasn't for a long time. Yeah. Is this a brand new idea or is this kind of a cyclical trend that has just happened to reemerge in this new context of having AI and having more focus on the environment? Has there been a human-non-human -human divide before? There have been stories about robots for a long time and there have been stories about, uh, you know, animals, fables about animals that speak. So, I mean, it's always been part of the human imagination. Um, but what I think is really different is that, like, it's actually happening. Um, and 
these changes are actually coming. I mean, it's never really been the case before that there was an artificial intelligence that you could speak with and, and speak with for a long time. There have been plenty of stories about talking to the animals, but no one's ever talked to the animals. But now there's a non-human thing you can talk to. Sure. So this is the kind of new wave of political and theoretical movements that you're referring to in the syllabus. Yeah. How are you defining the politics of humanity? That seems like a very broad term. Yeah, I just, I just mean the idea that the basis of citizenship is the human being, which was not the basis of citizenship for so long, right? The basis of citizenship was, you know, human being plus male, human being plus white, or, or something like that. And, sure. and that meant that we didn't examine very much what is and isn't a human being. So it's hard. And now it's harder. <laughs> <laughs> I think we started touching on this a little bit with an AI comment. But can we say decisively what it means to be human? Is there any one distinguishing factor that you can draw that divide? I really don't think there is. And that's what makes this such an important and difficult political question. In the history of political thought, and this is what my seminar is mostly about. There have been various attempts to define humanity around, for example, reason or language or morality um, or tool using. But now um, there are scientists who will tell you that animals reason, that animals use language, that animals have morality of a kind. It's not necessarily the same as human reason or human language, but it's much harder to say where the boundaries, where they are. And it's also true, of course, I mean, this is sort of coincidental, but as we learn more about the past of our own species, you know, we learn that there are all these other kinds of hominid, right? Neanderthals and Denisovans and all these other hominid creatures. Well, we now have the technology, right? We've recovered their DNA. We could put it in an embryo. We could regenerate a Neanderthal or a Denisovan, well, would that being get human rights? And why exactly? My basic conclusion is that basically we can't rely on the scientists to tell us what is or isn't human because they don't actually agree. They don't have firm ideas about what is or isn't in or out of a species. And the whole idea of species is not as firm in science as you may have been led to believe by high school biology. What's the alternative if we're not going to rely on scientists to tell us? Um, to me, the boundary that separates human from non-human is a political boundary, which means it's like a national boundary or a municipal boundary. So a national boundary might run along a river or a mountain range, but of course it's not the river or the mountain that divides the U.S. from Mexico or the U.S. from Canada. It's obviously a political decision where those boundaries go. You might use uh, a geographic feature as a sort of point of reference to make it easy for everyone to understand. This is where country A ends and country B begins. But if you're honest about it, you have to understand that every boundary is drawn by people and for a reason. And I think you can draw a boundary between the human and the non-human, but, but we have to kind of take responsibility uh, for the fact that we're drawing it. Um, nature's not drawing it for us. We may, again, like use points of difference to indicate where the boundary is, but, but we're the one doing it, not nature. Interesting. I think this is the first time we've talked to someone and had them say, rely less on science, but I understand <laughs> the context. It is, it is destabilizing, but I think really 
we've always been in this position. We always have been the one to say what is human and, and non-human, just as we've always been the one to say who's a citizen and who's not a citizen. So I view it more as, as taking responsibility for something that we've already been doing already. We've just been, you know, blaming nature in, in the same way that people might have blamed nature for not allowing women or people of other races to vote. Well, sorry, nothing I can do. Nature just made these differences. I can't do anything about them. Mm -hmm. Now we look back on that kind of claim and say, no, that was ridiculous. Nature didn't do anything. Humans did it and humans can undo it. But I, I think, unfortunately, it's, it's turtles all the way down. It's not that this distinction is natural and all the other ones weren't. It's that we're always responsible for defining the boundaries of citizens and citizenship. Is there a way to kind of explore that distinction from a methodological standpoint? If it's not going to be a distinction just drawn based on science alone, how do we go about that? Yeah, well, that is the super hard question that um, I am trying to write a book about, and it's taking me forever. Pandemic didn't help. But um, <laughs> to me, the, the way to do it is to understand that communities are formed around practices and it's in practice where we find sort of what is uh, or what isn't a member of our community and what i mean by that is language might be one of those practices and in, in the sense that human communities are, are formed by people speaking to one another and we, we don't exclude things because they don't have our biology. We exclude things because they don't happen to participate in our community of speech. But if a monkey shows up one day and actually really does learn how to speak, or if an AI really convinces us that it's a person, we shouldn't say at that point, no, you don't qualify because you're not biologically human. We should say, okay, glad you're here. Welcome to the party. Um, now it's time to pay taxes. So I think the way uh, to think about these things is to think about them as sort of practical abilities and not as kind of biological boundaries. And we can't say in advance what's going to be in and what's going to be out. And things can change, right? AI can develop human-animal hybrids. There are biologists who want to hybridize animals and animal genes into human genes. So we don't really know what kind of beings we're going to deal with in the future. Yeah, I could imagine it's like already a slippery slope when you start talking about people with organ replacements and people with little computerized chips in their yeah. prosthetics. And I could see how that progresses further and further as time goes on, too. Yeah. How much technology do you need to have in your body before we say you're not human anymore? How much uh, non-human DNA? These are questions for later generations, but they are, they are going to happen. So is there a basis for human equality based on grounds for human rights or democratic institutions? Like, how does this all connect in that way? Excellent question. Another very hard question. You know, I think the traditional way is to think of human rights as something that you're owed because you have this biological status. And I don't think that will work when the, the biology is sort of less uh, firm as, or impermanent or not permanent the way we thought it was. So I tend to think of rights and human rights and human equality as kind of the rules of the game that we're playing. And, you know, our concept of rights has evolved over time. You can see that if you look at the U.S. Bill of Rights, uh, some of them still seem very important. Some of them don't seem important at all, like the Third Amendment prevents the government from quartering troops in your home. Well, nobody's 
quartered troops in anyone's home for a long time now. So the, the, the right to be free from quarterment is not a very important human right to us. It was hundreds of years ago because they were playing a different game. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, those remain very important to us. You can imagine a world in which people just don't care about God so much, and freedom of religion came to seem like an ancient and unimportant vestigial right in the same way that the Third Amendment seems that way now. So if you think of rights more as the rules of the game we're playing, those rules evolve internal to a game, right? The, the first game of baseball or the first game of basketball didn't have exactly the same rules as it does now. And those rules didn't drop out of the sky. There aren't any like natural God-given rules of basketball, right? Those rules evolved to keep the game fair and to make it competitive and fun to play, right? So freedom of speech, you can think about as, well, you know, if we're going to have politics, everyone has to be able to speak and everyone has to be able to participate equally. Of course, that, again, that was not how people thought about it hundreds of years ago. They were perfectly happy to have speech limited to a certain category of, of beings. But so uh, I, I view rights and equality as sort of part of the evolving rules of our game. And I think that's as good a justification as, as any. Yeah. I guess my, um, my own bias taking classes here, at least in the past four years, has been this uh, the sense that we're very resistant to changing the rules of the game, at least here, and that people don't necessarily like to add rights. <laughs> like there, It seems like there's a resistance to changing any of those vestigial human rights that you were talking about, even though they're not relevant to our lives anymore. Do you think we're at a uniquely progressive point in our history where we're going to have to become less resistant to... I think... Those adjustments? I think these changes always happen, whether we resist them or not, over the longest term. And I, but I don't know that this is, I mean, every age thinks that it's the most important age, that the most change is <laughs> happening. But I, I mean, maybe. But I, you know, I don't know if our rate of change is any better or worse than anyone else's. If the 20th century was a humanistic one, what will the 21st century be? The 21st century will be the age of replicants. That's what I'm saying in a paper that I'm writing now. Um, what does it mean? It means um, that 21st century will be full of other beings in our lives, but besides human beings. And these will be, in the first place, the animals that are already with us, but what we now recognize as sort of more fully possessed of mind and um, feeling than maybe we did before. But also, uh, 21st century is going to be full of robots. But more importantly, I think, AI that will not be physical like a robot, but will be, but it will be social, right? It'll be perhaps something that greets you when you wake up and uh, serves as your personal assistant or that you interact with, you know, as, as you interact um, with, with a human being. And, of course, there will be combinations right we'll have robotically improved pets i'm sure and you know synthetic beings maybe someone will will combine uh what they think of as the best qualities of a dog and a cat into some ideal pet but um so i i feel like uh increasingly humans won't feel as alone in the world as in a way they did in in the 20th century and our society and politics will adapt to that 
Yeah, you mentioned feeling alone, and my mind goes to the epidemic of loneliness that some people like to talk about in relation to westernized countries right now. But it seems like tech as it is now isn't necessarily a salve for loneliness. Do you think it will progress to that point? Well, all I can tell you is that technologists are racing like crazy to develop these companion robots and pets. I guess I would say it already does work for some people. You know, maybe not for you, maybe not for me, but um, there are people who would love nothing better than to exchange love letters with the chatbot. And, you know, they find emotional fulfillment in that. It's not for me, but... Yeah, I mean, I think for me, knowing that whatever a robot says can't be that genuine would make it difficult to feel some type of bond. Philosophers talk about the problem of other mind, which is... Uh, the idea that, that you can never really know what's going on in somebody else's head, or if they're thinking at all. And, and Turing's point was that, really, you never really do know. And in fact, you, you, know, you get your social satisfaction from the fact that they interact with you in a way that you perceive to be normal. Uh, and, and once some other being does that, whether it's an animal or a machine or an alien, you're not really in the position to, to tell the difference. And so there's nothing more real or unreal about, about your feelings in that situation. Now, I actually agree with you. And I think there is a danger that human beings project emotions when it's not really there. And in the same way that you can fall in love with someone at the movies, even when you sort of know it's not real, you do have to be I think, in a sense, on guard uh, against the phoniness. Now, I mean, you also have to be on guard in your relationship with other humans. People can pretend to like you. Uh, people can pretend to be your friend or, or whatever. And you don't think about it every day, but it, it can happen that you are betrayed or something like that. So not, not every profession of affection is sincere, but on the other hand, we never have sort of full security that what people are telling us is absolutely real. Yeah, Amy and I talk about how much we love our dogs and how much we feel like we have genuine friendships and connections with our dogs, even though we can't really know what they're thinking or feeling. Do you think those types of relationship dynamics are going to apply as AI progresses? Dogs are a super special case because they're the only animal that's been sort of co-evolved with humans, right? Dogs aren't natural beings at all. Wolves are natural. Dogs were bred by humans to be nicer wolves and were, you know, were selected for their companionable personalities. That's how we got dogs out of wolves. But, you know, what the dog is really thinking? I, yeah, I'm not sure. What, one thing I'd say about those relationships with animals is that those relationships may be loving, but they're not equal. The, the equality, and again, it's not like that you would refuse equality to your dog, but your dog's just not capable of, of that kind of equal reciprocity that you have with a human partner. And that to me is, you know, why I would say the animals, you know, as much as we love them, will never really be part of our, our game of politics and, and shouldn't be. But that doesn't mean in the future that everything that is will necessarily be human. Yeah. By being part of the game, do you envision that meaning having rights similar to our current day human rights? Yes, that is what I mean. Okay, interesting. You mentioned at the beginning of the episode that there is this growing movement toward giving the environment itself rights as well. And I'm yeah. wondering how that would play into this because that's not necessarily like a sentient being. No, it's true. Uh, most people who advocate for rights for the environment don't 
conceptualize it as a, a being. Although some people will talk, for example, about Gaia as, mm -hmm. you know, the the earth being the, the collection of all living things making up one, you know, greater life form. Sure. And and um, and we'll think about rights for the environment as 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 if we are, you know, that is a being and we are giving it rights. But not everyone who advocates for environmental rights is is thinking like that. I mean, generally, though, what the environmental rights people have in common with animal rights people is the idea that sort of just preserving rights for humans by themselves is wrong. Uh, and it, it's wrong because it sort of gives humans a privilege that they don't deserve, or even that's dangerous, right? Part of the point of, of giving rights to the environment is to protect the environment against the depredations of, of rights-bearing humans. You know, I certainly think we have to protect the environment, but that doesn't mean that giving the environment rights is the best way to go about that. Because I think there too, you're kind of pretending to an equality that doesn't exist. The, the environment does not speak to us. Right. It can't advocate on behalf of itself. Right. Okay. And so, and so the environment always needs a representative, right? What would, what would really happen in practice is you would appoint some lawyer to speak on behalf of the environment, um, but a lawyer who cannot ever really consult with their client. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm only asking that specific question because we were talking with environmental activists who are yeah. toying with that idea of legal rights specifically for the environment itself. And I understand, you know, what motivates or part of what motivates those movements. But I think what's dangerous about those movements is that because the environment can't speak for itself, just like animals can't speak for themselves, what you really get then are other humans being appointed to speak. So what's really going on is humans are speaking for other humans, all, but then some of those humans are supposedly speaking on their own behalf, while others are pretending to speak on behalf of somebody else that they can't actually communicate with. And that seems to me like a dangerous, bad situation, uh, because there's a kind of phony representation going on. Phony not, in, you know, people may be sincere, but the environment doesn't actually speak for itself. What you've actually got there are just different humans talking to one another. Sure. So the inherent rights pathway might not be the best way to go about that. It doesn't mean that it's not really important to save the planet um, for, for our own sakes, if for no other reason. It just means that maybe the best way to do that is not to conceptualize the Earth as a rights-bearing being. Gotcha. Perhaps relatedly to everything we've talked about just now, tell us about your new book project that's tentatively titled The Human Boundary, Freedom, Citizenship, and Democracy in a Post-Human Age. Yeah, well, I think I've been telling you about it, which <laughs> is just that I, you know, I think we have to sort of reconceptualize how we think about what beings get rights and then what rights they should have. Is that the primary research question for the book? Yeah. Well, I guess I would say, how do we preserve some idea of rights and equality in a world in which um, maybe those rights and equality don't just attach to human beings, at least right off the bat? I, it's, it's taking me a while. It's, uh, I mean, it's very challenging to try to really write a political theory about uh, what makes humans human. Many have tried and many have failed. And your most recent book that came out is called Cinema Pessimism, A Political Theory of Representation and Reciprocity. Right. What are some of the main questions that you grapple with in that project and how does film incorporate yeah. into all this? So I'm sure it sounds like it's completely unrelated, um, 
but it isn't completely unrelated, and I'll try to make the connection this way. So a film is obviously a representation, that is, it's not reality itself, it's a representation of reality in a celluloid form or a digital form or something like that. Uh, nonetheless, it's a representation that is very powerful, and just as people may love their pets, People also love movie stars uh, or film stars or, or whatever. People like, people love TikTok stars. So uh, we already live in a world with a lot of representations that are important to us, even if we don't petition for citizenship on, on their behalf. So uh, the political theorist Rousseau, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, wrote a uh, book in letter form many years ago called uh, A Letter to D'Alembert. Uh, where he basically says representation is bad and, and representation is especially bad for democracy because it teaches us the habit of insincere and imitative relationships. The more we let those insincere and imitative, uh, that is representative relationships, stand in for reality, the, the further we get from a truly human society. So he thought that our world of course, he didn't have television or the internet or anything. He just had theaters. He thought that the world was becoming too theatrical in the sense that the habits of theater were kind of permeating our society and making it less real. So I, I mentioned before that, that part of the danger of uh, letting lawyers speak for the environment is that effectively you're, you're letting a representative substitute for reality, right? The environment isn't really speaking, a representative is speaking. And, and insofar as democracy becomes purely representational, it is in equal measure less real. So the Cinema Pessimism book is about sort of the uses and dangers of representation in democracy, which is one of the things uh, that we can learn about by looking at film and studying film because film is a constant sort of attempt to represent reality, but they're not all the same. Different films are different, different things you can learn from different films. So it, the book was kind of an attempt to learn about the phenomenon of, of political representation by looking at cinema representation. So two of your books have pessimism in the title. How yeah. does pessimism fit into your work? Yeah, well, my second book was, was just titled Pessimism, and it was pretty much a history of, of pessimism in European political theory. Pessimism to me is not about like being in a bad mood uh, or thinking that everything will be terrible. Pessimism to me is not even a mood. Uh, it's actually a theory or a, a way of looking at the world. In the same way that optimism isn't the same thing as hope or cheerfulness, pessimism isn't the same thing as being depressed or negative or something like that. But I do think that uh, optimism is a way of looking at the world that uh, assumes that things will get better um, because reason or nature or God has set us on some path uh, where things will always get better. Um, and pessimism is just the opposite of that. Not really the assumption that things will get worse, but taking away the idea that there is some natural pattern of improvement to the world. Hmm. Would you consider yourself a pessimist? In that unemotional sense, yes. Um, I just don't think there's any big pattern of the planet or the universe uh, that guarantees that things are going to get better. Mm. And I think that's all it takes to be a pessimist. And what follows from that in your work? Does that mean that we have to be more intentional about making things better? 
Well, it does mean that we can't rely on, I don't know, history or science um, to sort of tell us what to do. And we, we can't uh, rely on the future being better than the past, um, either uh, in terms of technology, but also in terms of democracy. We've had enough recent experience of that for a long time. I, I think we assumed in this country that democracy was here to stay and it was only getting better. After all, we had expanded uh, the, the group of people who got to participate in democracy to all humans. And that seemed like progress in the 20th century. And, and it certainly was a good thing. But it turns out that progress is more fragile than we thought it was. It turns out we really can lose our democracy. It's not here forever because history has a direction. We have to fight for it every day. So I think, among other things, the pessimist is, is much more aware of the fragility of democratic achievements. Is there anything, as we're starting to wrap up here, that we haven't touched on yet that you think would be important for listeners to hear? Well, I don't know how many political theorists you've had on the program, I assume a few over the years, but I, I do think that politics is fundamentally about ideas. There's interests, sure, there's power, but fundamentally, I do think politics is about ideas and societies are organized around ideas, and that's why uh, when you learn about political theory, you are learning about the fundamental organization of, of human society, and that's why everyone should take political theory. It's <laughs> a good plug. We'd like to end with some fun questions before you go here sure. that are a little less serious. So we'd love to know what are some of your favorite movies, political or otherwise? Do you have like a top three recommendations shortlist? Well, anyone who hasn't seen Blade Runner should certainly go out and see Blade Runner right away. A great film about humans and robots and, and animals actually and a, a world in which they interact maybe differently than, than we do today. That's a favorite film of mine. Uh, I love the film called The Philadelphia Story, which is a kind of parable about uh, the formation of uh, America, disguised as a romantic comedy from the 1930s. That's one I would recommend to anyone. Otherwise, I do love the film Go, which is just a pure action movie. That, that's a movie that doesn't pretend to have any ideas, and, and in that way, it's more honest. We know you started your new position at UW in August 2022, is that right? That's right. What are your first impressions of your first kind of academic year here in Madison so far? Well, it's gone by in a flash, so I, I it's hard to say. Um, but I'm impressed by how much everyone loves it here. Uh, people of Madison and, and, and of university, people in Madison love Madison, and university people love this university. And uh, I will say it's not like that everywhere else. So you're, you're very lucky here to have that spirit and sense of specialness and community. So that is something that's very distinctive here. Also, it's colder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you found a favorite spot so far to grab coffee or grab food? Um, I'd say I'm still trying to find those places. I've been running a lot on like the Southwest Trail, which um, starts near my house and then just goes out towards, I don't know, towards Middleton. And then I guess it goes all the way to the Illinois border if you follow it far enough, but it's a really beautiful trail. Yeah, it's gorgeous over there. Last question for you before, this is putting you on the spot, but we were talking about some genetically modified pets. If you had to choose, <laughs> some hybrid magical pet to have, what would you make? Oh, yeah, I guess it would be a dog that was improved by never shedding, never needing to go to the bathroom, and always sleeping past dawn. 
Uh, I'm sure there there's some, you know, there already are those glow-in-the-dark goldfish, so... <laughs> Genetically altered pets are already a reality, and I'm sure they'll get better soon. Well, we really, really appreciate you being here. This has been a fascinating conversation, so thanks Thank so much for coming on 1050. Thank you so much for having me. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.